It bears saying that at this point in this story of Israel and God, the greatest kings like David and Solomon, the ones we know so well, have long ago died, and successive kings have come along and disappointed the Lord. These kings have often inflated their importance. They have demanded that the people serve their needs. And in the process, many have abandoned their trust and in their sense of need of God. The latest king to do so is Ahab. And Elijah is the prophet at that time. Israel is surrounded by cultures and factions and religions of the day. And Ahab is chosen to conform to the powers and the ways of the world. He's married Jezebel, the Sidonian princess, as a political move to maintain his status and place and to elevate himself in the land. So Elijah tells Ahab, which is his job, God is not pleased, Elijah, or Ahab. Ahab rebuffs his efforts time and again, and as a result, Elijah finally tells him that Adonai, the Holy One, is about to bring a serious drought upon the land. Ahab might be powerful, and maybe, he, maybe he's even royalty in the world, but he will eventually be shown he lacks the power to control the weather. The authors want us to see that only God can do such things. Only God is worthy of Israel's affections. So the drought begins. It lasts a very long time. But the hardship not only impacts Ahab, it impacts everyone. In this lesson in humility for Ahab, everyone in the land struggles. Elijah has to escape Ahab's wrath for being the courier of this bad news, and he lives in the wilderness. But God does not leave him alone there. He shows him where water is, and he has ravens in a very famous story to take him food so that he does not go hungry. But eventually the water runs out. The birds have no food to bring to him, and Elijah's going to need help elsewhere. So it's here we enter today's story. Now, even if everyone suffers in this drought... None suffer more than those who live on the margins, those who struggle in the best of days. This was true then, and it is true today. The widow is one of those people. She is a foreigner to Israel's way. She did not worship the Holy One. She was now without a spouse, and she has a child who is sick and has to take care of him. And perhaps before the long drought took place, maybe things were better for her, although it's not certain. Maybe Ahab had done what he was supposed to do, as prescribed by Deuteronomy, which says that the Lord said to them that the strangers in the land, the fatherless and the widow, all of them should be provided for. Now it's interesting that this is who God would send Elijah to for help. And remarkably, we see that God has spoken to her already, directly. That's usually the prophet's role, for God to speak to them. But here, God speaks to someone who is not even an Israelite. Not even one of God's people. Someone who doesn't even worship God. But here, God speaks and works through her. And we don't have exactly uh, the knowledge of what was said in there. It's not written for us. But what we do know is what she might have thought about it seems to me that she might have been less than impressed. She was expecting Elijah. She knew he was coming and he comes asking for water and food and her reply is to say, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. A handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering two sticks right now so that I might go home and prepare it as a last meal for us. 
In other words, friends, friend, maybe your God is real, but it seems like your God may have duped us both here. I barely have two sticks to rub together, much less enough to feed you and my family. This made me recall an experience once in my life. Way back in my seminary days, we had to do what's called clinical pastoral education, the CPE. And I worked as a chaplain in the hospital for a whole summer. But at the end of the week, we would come together and discuss our week and, and see how it went for us. And we would learn from those experiences. And I remember one of those meetings saying something that, man, really, it seemed like people were in a bad mood this week. Now, maybe I said it because folks were less than welcoming. I don't know. But what I do recall is what my supervisor said to me. He says, what, what kind of mood do you expect people to be in right now? Do you not know where you are? You're in a hospital. Of course folks are in a bad mood. And it made me pause. And I say that because I think it's worth noting and considering the widow's mood in the context of her own story. She was tired. Life had thrown her enough punches already. And now this drought had come along and if you and I are tired these days, well, there are those who are probably tireder than me these days. We are weary. But there are folks who are deeply weary these days. And that is true. And the truth is that then and now on the margins of this world, it can be brutal and demanding. And it can leave people with fewer in length or quality or both fewer years in this life. On the average, those who live in poverty live seven years less than those who do not. Even in the best social systems, people fall through the holes and the gaps that are left. And pointing this out has always been the work of the prophet. It's always been the work of God's people. It's always been the work of the church. And even so, in knowing this to be true, think about how much we continue to lean on the marginal communities to do the labor that keep our economic engines turning. Maybe you or someone you know has lived in that place where resources are quickly exhausted, people are emptied, and the best thing that you can do today is get through it and hope that tomorrow's better. But be ready for it not to be. And if so, then maybe we can understand how she felt about Elijah showing up and asking for food. Wouldn't it have been a much better idea if God had sent Elijah to someone who had more to offer? Why her? The answer to that question is not in what she says or perhaps what mood she might be in. The answer is this how she opens her home, her life, and her hands to help Elijah, a stranger, regardless of how she responds or her mood or her circumstances. She is the kind of companion that all of us need in the trying time, isn't she? And I think God knew this. The Bible consistently reveals that we see things differently than God does. And maybe Elijah had come knowing this. You know, he had just survived in the desert with birds feeding him. He knew that God wanted good for her and he had no doubt. So he kept pressing her, no, no do not be afraid. Go and do as you've said, but first... Bring me a little bit to eat and then something for yourself because God has said that this jar of meal and this oil, it will not fail until the Lord sends rain again. He was assured of this. 
And sure enough, she does. And all seems to go well. In many days, they have food, and, and it looks like they're going to have what they need. But we learn that there are worse things than thirst and hunger in life. There's also the sick child on hand. And just when it looks like she can trust Elijah and God, things go sorely wrong. The breath comes out of her son. She's listened to God. She's helped Elijah with what little she had. She has risked her own well-being. She's told that things would, would turn out okay if she would have faith and trust, but this was not what was expected. Devastated, she lashes out at Elijah, and she asks if he had only come just to, to embarrass her and punish her for her mistakes. And Elijah has no good argument here. He seems to be just as perplexed as she is. He reminds us that even the best of us wane in our faith from time to time. Desperately, he swoops the child up, takes him up to his own room, and three times lays on him for reasons I really don't fully understand. But he begs God, have you brought me here to this place that I'm staying just for this to happen? And his desperate pleas are heard, and the Lord listens. Well, why? What causes the Lord to listen? We're not explicitly told here, but I, I think we can assume that it's because it, this shows us that God is not just the God over weather and droughts. God is also the Lord of life. Elijah presents his, her son to her and says, now, she says to him, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. And, and it's here that we see a purpose of 1 Kings. There may have been many gods and powers to follow in the land of which the widow had done, but Elijah's God is the real deal. He is the Lord of life. So those who read, give heed and have hope and put your trust in God. But this story is also about this widow, I believe. She shines a light on those who live on the hard margins of the world. And God often calls upon those who live on the hard margins to show us what the kingdom is like, right? She causes us to examine how we see the vulnerable and the poor among us and our willingness to be open or not be open to those who live on the margins. And this story shows us that those who live on those margins in the borders of our world are not objects of charity. They're not to be feared. Instead, time and again, the scriptures teach us that they are model agents of God's kingdom. Time and again, they are those who, because of their willingness to be faithful in the hardest of circumstances, even their own, they prove to be preferred companions in the story of God in us. And for us as Christians, now we know that Elijah's story also is about the one who is to come. We know that Jesus will be one of the greatest among us. As we enter this Christ the King Sunday in Advent, we know how this story begins, right? But it's important to remember that it begins with one who is low-born. One who is born on the margins of poverty and wealth of places like Nazareth and Bethlehem. Rejected by many because of that, of where he was from. And one who will raise people from the dead and be raised himself. Christ's story echoes this story. He will break bread. 
He will become our cup of salvation. He will wash feet. He will be anointed by oil. I appreciated the readings of Ruth Everhart this week. She wrote that as Christians, we share many painful stories. And the painful stories in our lives and the painful stories of Scripture. And when we faithfully wrestle with both kinds of stories in the context of the church and the body of Christ, we become conduits of good news no matter how hard it gets. Believing in Jesus is not a matter of assenting to certain doctrinal truths and, and how we think of God. It's about trusting the one who tells us that the truth will set us free, though. And once more, recalling the own struggles and pains of her life, she says, I need to keep myself grounded in Scripture. I need to return to the deep well of Christian story, but also do so among the body of Christ. In other words, I think she's reminding us that we need each other as faithful companions. At the end of the day, at a most basic level, I suppose Elijah and the widow of Zarephath learned that they need each other and that God had brought them together. They did not have much in common in life, but they did have in common a need to, be, to survive, to find support and companionship. They both desperately needed God, and those who need God also need each other. We forget that sometimes. And this is true for you and me. I recently heard um, Brene Brown talking about why she goes to church, and I may not quote her exactly right, but she essentially conveyed that the church is one of the few places in our world where we can continue to come together to a table at times with people who otherwise we would not encounter in life. And as soon as she said that, to the depth of my soul, I knew that she was right. And once we lose this truth, once we no longer lower our guard enough to break bread together as saints and sinners in the church, we're no longer the church. And the good news is that the kingdom of God will never be segregated, nor divided, nor isolated, nor single-minded. The kingdom of God will always be full of those of us who otherwise might not choose to be companions in this life, except for one thing, that they recognize, and we recognize that we need God, all of us. So on this side of life, my faithful companions, we are called to let down the guards that want to divide us. Don't buy it. It's not true. What will get us through this is putting down our guard to love one another no matter what. It will get us through pandemics. It will get us through church struggles. And it is what will make the body of Christ relevant for the future. I firmly believe that. So companions in Christ, we are drawn together not because we are alike or because we agree or because we look the same or we come from the same place. We are drawn together for one thing our desperate need of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.